0: Of Messiah we have the characteristics of the Messiah and all that follow him first thing we noticed the time, chapter 8 was that um, Jesus is a king unlike any other king that there's not he's, he's not the hero who's going to come through with power and all this stuff like we're going to have parades and everyone's going to be clapping but instead our king um, goes through suffering first um, and a shameful kind of death, a death that just doesn't make sense to us, at least, um, in, in, in what a uh, king and a savior would do. And then we noted that um, Jesus leads a movement that, that's characterized by the same things, um, where he goes through suffering and humiliation rather than grace, right? Suffering, yeah. humiliation, resurrection, and vindication. The same thing is the show of his people. They need to be learning to die for Messiah and like Messiah. Okay? Now we're looking at chapter 9. We're asking this question. Jesus has authority, but what kind of authority? Okay? So chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Let me read that.
1: Um,
0: So what does this messianic movement involve? It involves, it means that its leader has full authority. Who do do Moses and Elijah represent? Who do you think they represent? They represent two things. Moses is the law. Law? And? Prophets. Prophets. Okay, so whenever. Whenever you... uh, For example, Matthew 5, Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law of the prophets. That's shorthanded for the whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament can be thought of as the law of the prophets. That was kind of a shorthand way of referring to the scriptures. So this section on the transfiguration will deal with the authority of Messiah. Okay, what kind of Messiah do we have? What kind of authority does he have? He has ultimate authority. Because even though he has to die and be raised... He has ultimate authority. Now on the mountain, the disciples see Jesus, Moses, and Elijah conversing with one another. Okay? Just as a side light for them to do the, the, what this text is talking about. It's interesting to me that they already know one another. I don't know if that means anything, but they're
1: conversing with one another.
0: And uh, But what is of primary importance is what God the Father says. He says, This is my son whom I love. What? Listen to him. As important as the law is, Moses, as important as the prophets are, Elijah, Jesus is the one to whom we have to pay particular attention. Right? He's the one who commands and gives us an authoritative word from God. He is the one that we need to listen to. Now, that doesn't mean we ignore the Old Testament. Okay? The Old Testament is still God's Word. But what I'm suggesting to you is that um, now we listen to Jesus first. Listen to Him. He's the first one we listen to. Um, and in my view, okay, we have to understand the Old Testament through Him. I, I don't know if you've picked up on it yet, but as I'm preaching to you from First and 2 Chronicles, um, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to look at it through Jesus. You can't do the Old Testament unless you go to Jesus first. Listen to Him. Here's the law. Here's the prophets. Listen to Jesus. Which doesn't mean we ignore the Old Testament. It's still the Word of God, but it means now we look back at it through the lens of Jesus, through the person And the teachings and the commandments of Jesus. We can't understand the Old Testament. Remember, Old Testament is shadow. Right? It's shadow. All the commandments, every one of them, are shadow. All the prophecies are shadow. All the history is shadow. When we come to Jesus, we come to the full light. We look back and now we can see what that's all about. So listen to him. Jesus supersedes and fulfills the law and the prophet. Okay? Now, um, you know, they ask about Elijah's prophesied return. I mean, he's just appeared. Why not stick around? Why isn't Elijah sticking around and fulfilling the prophecy? What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? He says, well, Elijah's already come. Who could he be referring to? It's not, it's not real clear here. But it is remember, um, it is at, at the uh, at the beginning of Mark when we see this Elijah-like character coming on the scene. So who's he referring to? Baton. yeah, yeah, John the Baptist. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy of Elijah. Okay, so here's by the way, here's another principle of, of interpretation about the scriptures: is that when you read And it's going to be really obvious today when I preach the sermon on um, David at the temple. I'm going to just make it really explicit, but here's a real important uh, hermeneutical principle, uh, a a principle of biblical interpretation, is that when you read the Old Testament in the land of shadows and a prophecy is made or something like that, when you look how it's fulfilled, oftentimes it's fulfilled in ways that they couldn't have imagined, okay? Okay. So they say, Elijah's supposed to come. Elijah's supposed to come, right? That was a prophecy of Malachi. That Elijah was supposed to come and do certain things. And Jesus is essentially saying, John the Baptist is the one who fulfills that. Now, would they have seen that from the Old Testament vantage point? No. But from this standpoint, we see it. Ah, that's how God fulfilled that promise. Or that prophecy. Or that law, if you will. And so, I have to know Jesus and his revelation thoroughly so I can rightly understand the Old Testament. But the point of this section is simply this. Jesus says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. That's the, that's the focal point of the transfiguration. Right? Listen to him. Okay,
1: questions on that? We're going to dump the truck on you there. Yes, you have questions that So... Uh, the law of prophets with Christ—is it fair to say that you, you would see that as not intention, though, unless for some reason you're trying to take law of prophets apart from Christ, right? Say that again. So it's, it, it seems like as Christ stands as the fulfillment of the law, right, and yeah. stands in this passage in dialogue with the law and the prophets in, in some sense, um, the, the view here is not Jesus as opposed to the law of prophets, but Jesus as the capstone of the law
0: of prophets. I would. I. I... I would say, I would say um, more along the line of, of fulfillment. They were pointing in this direction, okay. So they were pointing in this direction. So Jesus is the fulfillment. He fills it all up to what it should be, okay. Second question. Yeah. If you, how do you restore all things? Yeah, dumb, she. When well, I was going over my notes. I thought, and reading the text, I thought, I don't have, I don't have the answer right now because I'm, you know, I'm trying to fly over Mark and, yeah, yeah, you know, I do know. Remember the language that's used about that. He's going to restore, you know, children to their fathers and so forth. Yeah, and how how did John the Baptist do that, or if he did that, um, at this point, uh, I'm I'm not ready to say. It's something I need to delve in deeper. Okay, um, uh, as well as I don't you know the very first verses of chapter nine. Some are going to taste death till they see the kingdom of God. I've always thought about that as they see the transfiguration. That's that's how that happens. So, you know, because of these sorts of things, there's all kinds of different interpretations, and we all got to come to our own conclusions. So, I I'm sorry, I don't exactly know how to answer that question. All right, I'll tell you what: you study out and come back with the answer next week, and you're saying, "Oh no, I hope the baby's born <laughs> on Saturday." <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I think it has something to do with the the kingdom of God Yeah. Yeah. So, I grew up in the tradition that said Elijah is going to come back. Right? Elijah, you know, is going to come back and there will be this this somehow this resurrected Elijah back on the earth doing certain things. And the reason why, I don't want to get bogged down, but I, no, but I think this is important for us as we read the Bible. The reason why I don't believe that anymore is because the Bible is written, it's not written like a theology textbook. It's written like a storybook and it used literary devices and so when, when uh, the gospel writers talk about John the Baptist, they emphasize the way he's dressed, where he comes from, what he eats, and all that sort of thing. And it's, it's like it's a literary device to say, hey, look, here's John the Baptist. It doesn't come right out and say, um, here's John the Baptist. Just like when you read a novel, right? You're not reading, and, and I'm not saying the, the Bible's fiction. When I say a novel, I'm saying, the novelist is trying to make a point, right? Um, Let me see if I can think of, I don't read very many novels to my chagrin, but, um, oh, I'm listening to the Red Badge of Courage right now, and it's just talking about this, this young guy who's wondering if he's going to be a coward or if he's going to be brave, and, and he. He goes into his first battle, and at one point, he's wondering why the generals are so stupid. At another point, he's saying, if I die, I'll finally have it all figured out. And then the next moment, he, he um, is, doesn't want to die, and all these sorts of things. And, um, you know, the writer could say, we all wrestle with whether we're going to be brave or cowards. At first... We may end up looking like cowards, but then something happens where we end up being brave, right? He could put it in three sentences like that, but instead he writes a whole story that just should get inside the guy and all that, and and it says that same thing, right? It says that same thing only in a much better way. Well, the Bible's written like that. It's written like literature. So, you know, Mark could say, um, oh, by the way, Uh, John the Baptist is Elijah, there's a fulfillment, let's move on. But instead it's written like literature. It's like, wow, look at this, that's John the Baptist. Am I making sense? When you go to a movie, you hate preaching movies, don't you? I'm sorry, look at this as Elijah, thank you. All right? So... um, you know, when you, when you go to a movie, it's making a point, but it does it in story form. Well, the, the Bible's written like that. Some of it's right out straight, and some of it's literary, literary allusion. So, um, all that to say, I think, I think Elijah's fulfilled in John the Baptist, okay? That probably got you thinking of more questions now, but that's okay. All right, let's look on. Jesus can perform miracles, but what does he really desire? Now, I'm going to prep you ahead of time. This is, to me, this is one of the hardest parts of Mark, this next story. So I'm going to give you the best shot I can on this, okay? And I hate doing this. I hate coming across like, this is tentative, but someone once taught me a fog in the pulp, or a a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew, right? If you don't get it, it'll be worse for everybody else, but I'll give you the best shot I got, okay? Chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. Okay, they're coming back from the Mount of Transfiguration. And scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. so I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able and he answered, "O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me." And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth and Jesus asked his father, "How long has this been happening to him?" and he said Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Um, yeah. Uh, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying, them the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. And when they did not understand the saying, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So that's the end. That's the inclusio we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the, the, the second bookend that flavors the whole middle part. So the question here in 14 through um, 29 is, Jesus can perform miracles, but what does he really desire? All right, so I'll give you the best shot I've got. Here's a question we need to ask. Do you think Jesus really wants to perform a miracle for the people? Why or why not? Perform a miracle for the people. I say no. Jesus does not want to perform some miracle for the people. Note in verse 19 that Jesus calls them an unbelieving generation. How long must I bear with you, right? Terms that usually are reserved to situations. He's reluctant How am I going to bear with you? He's reluctant to do this. And it seems, and, and I'm not sure how this happens, but in verse 25, it seems that he does it before that crowd is on him. So it seems he does the miracle before everyone is there to see it, okay? Now, verse 23. The point of the story seems to be Everything is possible for him who believes. All right? Now, we look at that at first glance, and it seems to us that Jesus says, anything is possible for him who believes in miracles. So some people look at this and say, see, we can do miracles if only we believe. Right? We just got to have faith. However, he's just used a phrase that indicates his disdain for those who seek miracles. He's just got done saying an unbelieving generation wants miracles, right? It's the unbelieving generation who wants miracles. So it doesn't seem like he's saying all things are possible. You can do miracles if only you believe. Um, Instead, is is what I think, he seems to say everything is possible for one who believes in Jesus. Okay? They want signs, Prove your Messiah. And Jesus' response is that everything is possible for those who believe that Jesus is who he says and that he can do it. So the Messiah is not about signs, he's about faith. It's not about signs, it's about faith, okay? Why can't, why can't the disciples do the miracles? Jesus says, well, you could, you just needed to pray. In other words, you had to show your dependence. You needed to pray, right? You needed to show that faith. You needed to show that dependence. Um, so the crowd runs to Jesus to see a sign, but he heals before they can get there. Now, the disciples thought that they had the power to do it, and they didn't. Now, remember back in chapter 6, Jesus had given them power to cast out demons, right? He'd given them that power, and now he says, well, what really matters here is prayer. Now, here's here's the question. Had the disciples given in to the magic view of what they were doing, Jesus gave us his power. We can do it, right? We got the power. We can do it. And it's not happening, right? Right? It's not happening. They could go out and do their thing. We can go out and do throw out demons. We can do that. And it seems that Jesus wants them to operate with a sense of dependence. And that's expressed by prayer. Okay? In other words, Jesus, not our powers, even those, even those kinds of things given to us by Christ must be faith's resting place. Jesus has to be the resting place of our faith, not in our ability to do even what God gives us to do. Okay? So God's gifted every one of you here today, but do you do what God's called you to do by faith with a sense of dependence? All right? Now, again, I I hesitate. This is the thing that pops into my mind, okay? Um. I think, I've done it for 38 years, I think God's given me the gift of teaching. You know, I'd let other people decide that, but it seems that's been affirmed, okay? So I can just get up and teach, right? That's a gift from God. And and I can tell you that, um, man, that's just just not the way of doing it. You gotta pray, you have gotta express absolute dependence on God. Right. If I don't pray before I preach or teach, then I am. I'm just scared to death. (laughs) I realize I didn't pray. Now, God's gracious and oftentimes he still uses this even when I don't pray. But I want to tell you, I, I think I have to pray. I have to pray. And that should be the same with you. You know that God's gifted you a certain way. You know what you can do well, but do you do it with dependence on God? He's given that to you, but do you do it with dependence on God? So in my view, this passage is not about you having the ability to do miracles. If to anyone who believes. It's talking about believing in Jesus. Do you, do you do this with faith and dependence on Jesus? Do you Do you... Jesus isn't in the business of doing signs. He's not in the business of just doing miracles to, to just, just amaze everybody. By the way, we've seen that already in this gospel, haven't we? People are amazed, but they don't believe. They're amazed at the wonderful things he does, but they don't believe in his mission, in his person. And so Jesus here is, is telling us we've got to be dependent on him. And then, you know, another thing. Do we expect Jesus to do impossible things? This is what really gets me too. Do we expect Jesus to do impossible things? In our dependence, do we say, Jesus, do this incredible thing? Now I'm not saying he appears and does a miracle, but right? Can I really bring it home? Here you guys are. So what do you define as an impossible thing? Here's an impossible thing. Okay, I was just gonna give you an example. Here you are, little congregation, going through tough, tough times. Right? Are you praying? Oh, Lord Jesus, not just get us through, not just give us the grace to handle this, but God, grow this place. Grow this place. Give us the ability to, to reach people, all right? That seems, I don't know, maybe that doesn't seem impossible to you, but maybe that's how we ought to be praying, right? Um, so I was thinking about this. I've got... Uh, Maybe a difficult thing to do this afternoon. Maybe difficult. I don't know. But you know, my prayers tend to be, "Oh God, when we talk to these people, um, oh, give me the words to say," or "Give me the words to say." And Lord, just open up an avenue here where we can really minister to these people. We tend to be too 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 focused, and so. Anything's possible to those who believe in Jesus. So let's pray for impossible things. Let's pray for difficult things. Uh, Newton wrote uh, in one of his hymns, You're coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. So, you know, as you know, and this happens a lot. Even as I teach and preach, I'm convicted by the word of God. Um, um, like for this situation this afternoon, I haven't been praying the impossible things, Right? It started to dawn on me this morning as I'm looking over my notes. Oh man, I've not been praying right for that situation. Um, and then he ends. Okay, any questions on that? Or you can challenge me if you want. I'm I'm open to a better interpretation of this passage. It's a difficult one, I think. But I think that's where we. That's where I'm going to land, Caleb. Yeah. Well, I think maybe he's speaking of this kind of unbelief, though. Well, that's a, no, that's a good question. Because that's the context, right? I believe help my unbelief. Do I, do I have to give you an answer right now? I'm just to what you were saying. Yeah, that could be. Well, next time I teach this, maybe I'll be at a different place. But that could be. I'll have to look at that. That's good. That's good. Okay. But I'm having so much fun; I lost track of time. Um, yeah, um, we need to think about that. We need to think about that because that's that is the the uh, context. All right. By the way, I love what that what the Father says. I believe, help my unbelief. I love that. I mean, have you ever prayed that prayer? Lord, I believe. Please help my unbelief. That, by the way, that also says something about. Um, well, just play that out for a bit. It says something about the fact that we can believe. It, it's not. It's not unnatural. It's not. As Christians, we believe, and yet we still have unbelief. Do we not, folks? Let me tell you. This last week, right. Um, This is what's coming to my mind right now. This last week with Bethany's death and dealing with everything and, um, um, you know, my own daughter. My own daughter was this close with Bethany. I mean, just, they were inseparable, right? And, uh, you know, asking questions like, you know what? I know God's working for good, but I just don't see it right now. Right? And uh, <clears throat> that's that's not abnormal, right? We believe, and yet, man, it's hard to believe. It help my unbelief. Uh, you look at the Psalms, okay? For example. Um, Psalm 22, what does David write? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> what, David, why are you saying this? Because Jesus isn't the only one who said that. Now, Jesus put a whole new universe of meaning into that. But here's David saying, why have you forsaken me, God? And then the next verse is he says, um, but you're the Holy One. You're the Holy One of Israel. You're enthroned on the praises of your people. And then the next verse is he's going, yeah, but man, I'm just this crumb. I'm I'm look at what's going on with me. And then and again, he says, "Yes, but." And then again. Ah. Oh, right? And you see a guy who's bouncing back and forth, right? God, why have you forsaken me? Wait a minute. Maybe you haven't. But look at this. Yeah, but but you know what? And it made me think. Um it made me it made me think this is this is what you're like in these horrible, terrible situations. Belief and unbelief, right? Both of those are there, and and so it's not abnormal. But you know, it means there's still room for growth, obviously. But but um, you know, we we uh, we have to recognize that that the Bible sees us as people toss to and fro between truth and falsehood and grief and finding meaning and all that sort of thing. It, it sees that. It reflects that. It reflects us. And so it essentially is telling us, you still got to be a disciple. You got to learn in all this. You got to keep learning. Um, so, all right. Then he ends with another discussion of Messiah's death and his resurrection. So, the glory of this Messiah, the glory of this King, is wrapped up in the humiliation and vindication of Jesus. And so, we have to understand the centrality of Jesus' death, his humiliation, his resurrection, his vindication, in order to understand anything about him and his kingdom. All right? If I were to sum it all up, it's what? It's humiliation and death but eventual resurrection and vindication. Or as some have put it, no crown before the, uh, before the cross, right? And, and we have to get that into our, our minds, I think, as disciples of Jesus. So God turns our whole value system upside down. Glory and power do not come first through exaltation, but glory and power comes first through humiliation and death. And if that's true for Messiah, it certainly is going to hold true for us. Um, And this upside-down Messiah, he's the one who has ultimate authority in our life. The one who turns everything upside down is the one who has ultimate authority. And above all, we have to understand life and ministry from that upside-down perspective. Okay. Um, Again, and we're going to see this in the next chapter, the whole idea of what distinguishing marks of followers of Jesus are. What are they? And it's totally not like what, what we're used to, okay? It's not what we're used to. Um, okay, questions. Broad, general questions, specific questions. Okay. All right. Uh, one last challenge to you. Um, Jesus is a Lord who does things that um, that's totally opposite of what we're used to, what we how we think and how the the world thinks. And I think our temptation too often is to try to domesticate Jesus, fit him in a box. When he says these things, you know. By the way, path to glory is through glory, and it's through humiliation. It's like we we'll say, okay, but but do you really mean like what I'm going through now? <laughs> you can't mean that. Yeah, he does. So, all right. Well, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, our Lord, our Master, our King, who um, gives us a totally different perspective on the world and Him and how we're supposed to live. Um, Help us to see Jesus as the wisdom from God who contradicts all that we're used to. And help us, as His disciples, as His followers, to live that upside-down way as well. Thank you for your word. Help us now to walk in obedience to it because of what Jesus has done for us. Because in his humiliation, um, he saved us. In his glory, he's going to rescue us eventually. So we pray that we would look to Jesus as our savior and seek to live like him because we love him. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.